0: Yeah, well, let's dig in. Hello, everybody. I'm David Cooks, and I tell you what. We we know that paralysis can take on many forms. It can be physical, like mine, or it can can
1: be psychological.
0: And what we try to do is feature stories that go from difficult places to fulfilling purpose. What seems
1: impossible. Be done by you
0: she says i eat adventure for breakfast and i'm not afraid of taking the road less traveled
1: it may knock you down don't let it stop you.
0: That roadless travel that she's talked about has taken her to the White House, to Taiwan as a Fulbright Fellow. She's done work with the World Food Program.
2: I'm very proud of the work that we do and the movement that we've built for Upcycled Foods. Over the last three years, we started with a group of nine companies in the Upcycled Food Association to sort of grow consumer awareness of Upcycled Food. And we've grown to over 225 members, including some of the largest uh, food companies companies in the world, like Mondelez, Barry Calibut, Kroger, Del Monte, people who really have sway over the global food system. And we've you know, raised awareness of this and gotten them on board to create some of their own upcycled products that when you purchase upcycled food, you're helping fight food waste, which is helping fight climate change. Um, so that work really means a lot to me.
1: Got so much to give, a lot of life to live, you must go. Paralysis to
0: Purpose. Get your pen and paper out. Yeah. I'm taking notes.
1: Paralysis to Purpose.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Paralysis to Purpose, the podcast. I'm your host, David Cooks, and I am super excited about our guest today. She says, I eat adventure for breakfast, and I'm not afraid of taking the road less traveled. I'll tell you who she is in a minute. But first of all, Let me thank you for listening to this podcast and helping us out by sharing this podcast with your friends and family, leaving us a review and definitely give us some likes. And, um, you know, this week is no exception to all the weeks that we do this. I get to sit down and listen to and learn from some of the most intriguing and inspiring people in the world. And today is no exception. She's the co-founder and COO of Renewal Meal. That roadless travel that she's talked about has taken her to the White House, to Taiwan as a Fulbright Fellow. She's done work with the United Nations World Food Program. Um, she's a champion for cultural exchange, and uh, she just is making a difference in the world in a way that I never would have thought was possible. So our, we're going we're gonna to talk about a lot today, and, and maybe we'll talk a little bit about food insecurity as well. And, and how what some of she is doing is helping to impact that around the world. Uh, Carolyn Cotto, I wanna thank you for being on the podcast and welcome to Paralysis to Purpose to Podcast.
2: Thanks so much for having me, David, I'm excited to be here.
0: Yeah, well, let's, uh, hey, let's just dig in from childhood and, and give a little bit of your background and uh, because you are involved in the food business and you have been for a while, just talk a little bit about your childhood, your family and how you really fell in love with food.
2: Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it's funny. It's like food has kind of been the one thing that I've just, you know, really loved from from the beginning and not a not a whole lot of explanation why but just was immediately drawn to it um you know loved to cook from a young age um and then when i was in my teen years my parents actually opened an ice cream store named after me so um got to kind of work work in that space learning a little bit about what it means to serve food to people um, but yeah, definitely have always been fascinated just by food and kind of how it brings people together and all of the sort of work that goes into producing it from farm level to, you know, the chef in the kitchen. Um, I remember like watching Emerald Lagasse as a kid and being like, oh my gosh, that's so cool. Like, you know, I want to be a chef. Um, when I got to college, definitely decided to focus more on the nutrition aspect of food. So, um, studied human science with a focus on nutrition, because I think, uh, you know, I'm always appalled by how little attention nutrition gets in sort of like health and medicine when it affects so much. Um, If you go to medical school in the U.S. today, you get, you know, maybe a class or two on nutrition when that's, you know, often one of the number one risk factors for um, long-term diseases and um, kind of things like cardiac health.
0: Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit because once you mentioned that, I was like, you know, that's right. You never really hear much about nutrition at all when when the conversation is about health and wellness that's that is interesting when when did you first identify that as something uh that you wanted to follow through on and make a difference in what was there any situation in your life or or how did this happen
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting, you know, you're when you're a kid, and you're in health class, like they kind of teach you at least back in the 90s and early 2000s, about the food pyramid. um, And that's kind of your only context for like, oh, this is what healthy eating means, you know, I need this many grains and, and this many vegetables, and like, I can treat myself a little bit of the time, Um, you know, Michelle Obama's work and some of the work of the Food and Nutrition Service um, updated that to my plate more recently. So I'm just trying to give people like real context of how to conceptualize what it means to eat healthy. But, you know, there's very little work being done in schools to like educate children on how to read nutritional labels or like what, you know, what does the percentage of dietary fiber on that label mean? Like how, how should you be conceptualizing that. Um, And I think when I got to to college, I was, um, yeah, very, like I said, very much taking this sort of um, health focused lens, most of my peers wanted to be doctors. And I was um, just seeing firsthand through a lot of my work Like volunteering outside of school, that so many of the nutritional problems of people in the DC Greater DC area where I went to school um, was not because of their individual behavior choices of how eating healthy, but rather because of the environment that they lived in. So many of them lived in food deserts. There was, you know, fast food was the only option, or a corner store. Um, You couldn't even find a banana in a corner store. Like trying to get to a grocery store would often take you multiple forms of transportation and a lot of time. And a lot of these folks just didn't have that or the financial resources to get there. So it really just opened my eyes to the fact that this is kind of a system problem. And a lot of my work was like, oh, if we just, you know, tell people how to cook and like get them recipes for healthy eating Like will help solve this problem, when in reality it's like, no, we really need to fix the infrastructure that um, makes food accessible.
0: You mentioned um, that this is a systemic issue. And um, we've, we're in a day and age now where a lot of our systems are being challenged that have been here in our country for many, many years, uh, some on race, some on economics, uh, you know some on gender di- different things um do you do you find that the systemic nature of this um lack of information um is it is it targeted or is it widespread what was what has been your experience on it because some some will include this as part of systemic racism um but I don't know if it's i don't want to limit it to that or or make it bigger than that so I'm asking you what where do you see this
2: yeah i mean i think it at the heart i think it's a it is a class issue but i think it's tied very closely to systemic racism as well mm-hmm. um especially it it depends you know we see similar issues in like appalachia which happens to be mostly white as we do in anacostia in dc which happens to be primarily black um but it it really comes down to like you know, lack of financial resources, because like grocery stores don't want to go into these areas because they don't think they can make enough money, which is, you know, eating healthy is basically a human right. And so we need to make sure that we're providing access to those areas. Um, and I think there are organizations doing a lot of amazing work to try to to try to try improve this, like putting um, refrigerated Um, kiosks inside of corner stores to bring like healthy produce. Um, There's some new like vertical farming companies that have popped up in Appalachia to try to bring like locally grown healthy produce to those communities. But at the heart of it, I think, yeah, we have not solved um, the larger issue is that, you know, most of these systemically oppressed um, communities are the ones suffering and not only from health and nutrition, but it compounds itself, right? So if you don't yes. have healthy food, then you have, you know, poor health outcomes, then you have, you know, for right now, more uh, COVID deaths in those neighborhoods, and, and it's just kind of a, a spiraling issue.
0: Yeah, so it's interesting. And and uh, I, I also agree with you that I think many of these issues are socionomic in nature, and is the underpin of it. And it just happens to spill over in co- specific communities that um, don't have resources like others do. Um, what, what have you found to be uh, your greatest challenge as you embark upon this journey uh, in terms of attacking food deserts? Um, and for our, for our audience, I don't know if any, everyone understands what that means, but um, in many of our urban areas and our central cities and, and throughout the country, um, for example, I, I often say there is a plethora of fried food liquor stores and check cashing places. Um, there's nothing there to eat at those places that are healthy, um, but there's a lot of them in those communities. Um, and in order to solve that, we need to change that dynamic and you know, get rid of some of those check cashing places, get rid of some of those liquor stores and reduce some of the fried food with, you've got urban farming you can do now, there's other things that can happen um, for that community. What's the biggest pushback you get when you start talking to people about this?
2: Yeah, I would say my my current day-to-day work is focused a bit more, like, upstream on um, food waste reduction, but there are some really interesting organizations like Imperfect Foods um, that was trying to sort of pilot fresh food delivery in boxes to these communities. And some of the pushback they were getting was that they weren't able to get like WIC dollars to be able to be used for those, um, or like SNAP money um, Mm -hmm. to be able to be used for that because of the way that the government program is set up. Um, so I think it's also about you know it's not only about creating the infrastructure but it's about creating the policy and um, that access as well. Um, and then yeah, I think another key thing is that if if you can't those those, organizations move very slowly. So sometimes you just need to kind of like accelerate. So some of the work I did in Boston was on like mobile farmers markets, like trying to go into communities and bring food to them rather than having to rely on them okay. getting out. Um, so I think it's, you know, trying to, to do that. But I think overall, everybody agrees that like we need to make sure that people have healthy food and can get aligned on that. I don't think it's like a general pushback to that idea, but I think it's these tiny little, um, you know, oh, oh, you know, the policy is this way that really gets in the way of kind of turning the ship in the right direction.
0: Making some progress. Yeah. When you said that wick and snap, and for our listeners, wick and snap uh, many of the people who are on welfare, at welfare or some sort of government assistance, they get these, um, uh that's the currency that they can use to to purchase uh the the goods and services that they need it's interesting that it's set up such a way that um you can't get quality fresh food off of those that's that's for those who want a definition of something that's systemic there there it is right there
2: yeah and sometimes you can but there's a lack of education, right? So like if you purchase in some communities, if you go to a farmer's market and you use WIC or SNAP dollars, you can get two times as much produce for your money. But often people don't know that that, that's the case or they can't get to the farmer's market because it only happens on Saturday morning and they work during that time. So there's all of these little things where it's like everybody has best intent, but somehow it hasn't aligned to, to create that change quite yet.
0: Well you talked about your childhood and where you were exposed to to the food industry, so to speak, as a very at a very young age. i, I remember the food pyramid back when I was younger as well. Um, you just talked about education as one of the things that obviously um is is missing a lot in these situations um if you I mean you've you've done stuff with Michelle Obama's work and and, and other work um at what point? is it ever too early i guess is the question to begin to infiltrate the educational system with some of these messages as well
2: i would say no <laughs> i know that like our schools and the education curriculum are contentious issues these days but i think it's uh it is really important and i know that a lot of funding has been cut for sort of extracurricular programs or like health classes or music classes but i honestly think like Home ec seemed to be like a really important skill for Americans, you know, prior to the 1980s and 90s. Like I never had home ec, but my parents talk about like, oh yeah, we learned to cook. And like we, you know, learned all of these essential skills that I think have been phased out of American education and actually really are important. Um, there's a, a TV program that Jamie Oliver, who's a British chef, ran in the U.S. a few years, like in the early 2000s, um, where he went into schools in West Virginia, which is historically one of the most obese states in the U.S. And he like went into a kindergarten classroom and basically showed kids vegetables and said like, "What's this?" And they had no idea like what a tomato or a potato looked like because their only interaction with food was in you know frozen bags of French fries, um, that kind of thing. So I think it's it's really important, and there are definitely lots of nonprofits doing. This work to sort of get kids exposed to um farming to kind of like what what is what does our food look like where does it come from Um, and what does that mean so i think that work is really important and then encouraging throughout the k through 12 system like people to understand like you know how 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 to read nutritional labels and how to educate themselves on like what they need to do for long-term health and longevity
0: well, I well look since since we're arguing about the curriculum and and turning it upside down, now is a great time to add this into the mix, um, and we can add some uh, stock market knowledge to these young kids and get that wealth gap taken care of. So now is the time if you're listening and you are involved and passionate about one of these things and you have children that are in the uh, in the educational system, push for these things because better health leads to better wealth and better wealth leads to more access and whether we like that or not that's just how things work so all right now um i'm gonna we're gonna take a break in a moment but before we do that um what's your favorite ice cream do you so like do you cheat in a little bit because you, you grew up and you said there was an ice cream place that your parents had named after you first of all what's your favorite ice cream do you still eat ice cream
2: definitely still eat ice cream occasionally. I think when you work in it, you're like, oh my God, I, I can't eat any more ice cream. It's like caked on your arms because you're like reaching into three gallon barrels. But um, my partner loves ice cream more than anyone I've ever met in the world. So we, he is a, a big ice cream fan. Um, I i don't know that I have a favorite, but I feel like I'm from New England. So um, a summer treat there is I love like um, black raspberry ice cream with like chocolate chips. It's kind of a New England specialty. So that's one of my faves.
0: Well, I'm from Wisconsin and we're frozen. We do frozen custard. And so um and there's a difference between ice cream and frozen custard. But,
2: there is, there is.
0: <laughs> and so I think frozen custard might be a little less healthy than ice cream. But we'll just a little,
2: a little more egg, I think. A,
0: a little more egg. And so uh yeah, we, we love our frozen custard here. And I just like vanilla and chocolate, you know.
2: Yeah, you and most of Americans. I think vanilla continues to be the most popular flavor by far.
0: Wow. So um, you co-founded Renewal Meal, and you're now the the COO. I really want to spend what time we have left today talking with you about that and what all that means and recycling and um, food waste and, you know, it's, it's amazing when you begin to research it and it's, and how we can become much more efficient with what we have. And so um, what we'll do is we'll take a quick break and then we'll come right back and we'll begin to talk about Renewal Mill, the company, with our great guest, Carolyn Cotto.
3: We hope you're enjoying Paralysis to Purpose, the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at Paralysis to Purpose for more updates. Also, check out David's website at davidcookspeaks.com to learn more about his mission and purchase his book, Getting Undressed, from Paralysis to Purpose.
0: Welcome back to Paralysis to Purpose, the podcast. Yep, I'm your host, David Cooks, and we are with Carolyn Cotto, And she is the co founder and COO of Renewal Mill. We spent a lot of time in that first part of our podcast today talking about food shortages and and different uh, things systemically that um, we need to look at in terms of helping all people in this country have a healthier life. Um, She's somewhat of a nutrition specialist, as well as we found out uh, in that first part of our podcast. Let's shift gears now and talk about what you're currently doing. Um, And then maybe we'll come back because the White House thing and the Fulbright Fellowship. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that you've done. But let's talk about renewal meal. As I was doing some research and I never thought, we talk talk about recycling things all the time. And I think you all may use the terminology of upcycling. I think that's one of the terms that I've, I've used. But I've never thought about food waste and how that can become a source of nutrition for people. Could you just kind of take us through the idea of starting this company and how you came to this?
2: Yeah, of course. Um, I think, you know, we were talking about this, this problem of a lot of people not having access to healthy food. And at the same time, we have this paradox in this country of throwing away about 40% of all the food that we produce. And most of that is happening at the consumer level. So in our own kitchens, um, you know, we're buying too much at the grocery store and throwing out what we didn't cook. We're wasting too many leftovers from restaurants. Um, and it, it's its a massive problem. So uh, it's about a trillion dollar problem um, every year. About a billion pounds of food are going to waste. And this accounts for, um, depending on different estimates, about Eight percent of total greenhouse gas emissions, which according to some research shows that it's um, kind of one of the number one drivers of climate change. More than, you know, driving cars and fossil fuels, um, it's, it's one of the largest drivers of climate change. Because when you waste food, you're not only wasting that particular piece of food, but you're wasting all the resources that went into growing it and producing it and shipping it um, and packaging it and getting it to you, so it's it's really a huge um, loss, and it's about thirty to forty percent of food globally that's going to waste.
0: Wow, thirty to forty percent of food globally is going to waste.
2: Yeah, and, and in this country, it's forty percent or more.
0: Um, so so, so it sounds like it sounds like if we just were more less wasteful, we could probably I don't know solve world hunger but at least dented some right
2: yeah i think you know we always say like by 2050 there's going to be 10 billion people in the world and and feeding them isn't going to be a matter of growing more food but growing using the food that we already grow more efficiently um, so that's kind of where we we came in. So as you were saying, there's um, this concept of of upcycling. Um, it, we got started personally at Renewal Mill out of my co-founder's firsthand experience with her juicing business. So she um, had recently survived cancer, was trying to. Um, you know, start a juice company where she was taking a lot of care to source locally grown organic produce and bring that to, um, residents in Boston through the form of like delicious blended juices. And, um, she was frankly appalled because at the end of every day through her juicing business, she was left with this mountain of fruit and vegetable pulp, um, from carrots and, and all these other things that she was juicing that she, couldn't really use because she tried making it into crackers or muffins, but there was just so much of it that you know she could only make so much um, of those products. And so uh, she ended up going to grad school and having a fortuitous conversation with the owner of one of the largest tofu companies in the country. Um, and he was like, that's cute. You think you make a lot of food waste in your like tiny one-stop shop juicing business. I you know, make tons and tons of pulp every week at my tofu facility, because um, for those of you who aren't familiar, when you make tofu, the first step is making soy milk. And when you make soy milk, you can essentially think about it like juicing soybeans. So you're boiling and blending them with water, you're siphoning off that liquid, which is what goes on to become the soy milk, which is used to make the tofu. Um, and in the process, you're left with this soybean pulp um, And for every pound of soy milk that you make, you're making about a pound of this pulp. And the pulp is called okara. So it's a traditional Japanese word, um, but it's, you know, full of nutrition. It's about 60% fiber, 20% protein, really neutral in flavor and color. And um, at his tofu facility, it was like just being thrown out. Um, and if he was lucky, sometimes he could get a farmer to come pick it up and use it for um, animal feed, but it's a really inconsistent offtake solution. Um, and so most of the time it was just going to landfill. Um, and when it goes to landfill, it you know decomposes and releases carbon dioxide. And we start that cycle again of um, carbon emissions associated with food waste.
0: So d- is composting bad for for the climate?
2: No, for sure, uh, composting is is a you know good solution for for organic waste materials when it's done correctly. So you have to have um, the right environment in your compost pile in order to get that decomposition into r- rich soil. Um, but often landfills are not managed correctly. Like you need to continuously turn a compost pile to get the right amount of oxygen in there to get the microbes going to get that decomposition. But in a landfill, you're often not getting any of that. And so you're just causing um, methane release basically. And it's a, it's not a managed process. And we're lucky here in like California where I live that we have citywide composting. So we like people, the city actually picks up our compost, like they pick up our trash and recycling, but that is not very common in most places across the country.
0: Uh, The the reason I asked that is because I recently have interviewed some people on the podcast uh, who are vegans. And I, and I found out that there's healthy vegan eating and there's unhealthy vegan eating and i i thought you know just go with the meat and dairy and you're good and they're like oh no 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 there's good and bad and so that made me think about compost and like is it all the same and it's not and so so whatever you whatever you're doing you have to you know do it do it the best way so your your partner your co-founder talked with this tofu maker and that part is amazing about the quality of the waste of that that's when you said that you know, the fiber and everything. That's amazing. Um, What happened after that?
2: Yeah. So basically, it's it's completely arbitrary that we say, okay, something that comes out of one side of this machine we call soy milk, and something that comes out the other side of the machine we call trash, even though they're like both produced in a food safe facility. They're both coming from the same input, which is 100% uh, U.S. grown organic soybeans. You know, soybeans have more protein per serving than chicken, so it's it's just kind of this arbitrary line in the sand that's been drawn. So we looked at that and said, there has to be a better way. Um, What is the way that we could keep all of this valuable nutrition in the supply chain and prevent it from going to waste? Because in countries like Japan, if you made soy milk at home, which is pretty common, you would never throw away that pulp, the okara, because you spent the money to buy the soybeans. So you don't want to throw away about 60% of that. Um, you would saute it with vegetables to create a savory side dish, or you would use it in a savory pancake, or you would bake with it. So um, we kind of identified that there are two problems with the okara at scale. One, that it starts spoiling very quickly because it's about 80% water. So you have about four to five hours before it starts to go rancid because the bacteria love that sort of warm, moist area. Um, So we were like, okay, if we're going to solve this, we first need to make it shelf stable. And the second thing is that it's extremely heavy to transport because it's about 80 percent water. So we wanted to reduce the amount of transporting we needed to do so. with those two goals in mind, we decided that the best thing to do to make it shelf-stable would be to dehydrate it and mill it into a flour substitute. So that's what we do. We take this pulp um, and turn it into a high-fiber, gluten-free Okara flour um, that can be used in all sorts of different applications for baking. It's really low in net carbs, so it's keto-friendly, um, great for pancakes, sort of um. Any like any sort of traditional flour-based product, both sweet and savory. Um, and yeah. And then we took a step back even further and said this isn't only happening in soy milk, but if we look at other plant-based milks like oat milk, this is also happening there. So our second ingredient is actually transforming the pulp left over when you make oat milk, which is very popular right now, um, into a high protein, gluten-free oat flour.
0: Is is anybody else doing this in the country? Do you have competition?
2: So what this whole kind of industry is called upcycling so different from recycling um, in recycling you need to take something and you need to break it down into its component parts and then reuse those component parts in something else with upcycling we don't need to break it down we can take it as is and elevate it to a higher use. Mm And so upcycling has been a very common concept in things like furniture or clothing, Um, but it's only kind of in the last decade that we've started using this terminology to refer to food. So um, Renewal Mill is one company in this upcycled food ecosystem, but there are lots of people who are using what we call byproducts, that basically the pulps that we're using, um, and and turning them into ingredients that can be utilized so that we use 100% of the inputs. So people are doing this with like spent grain left over from beer brewing. Um, they're also doing it with the whey left over when you make yogurt and turning those into like beverages. Um, they're doing it with leftover produce um, pieces left on fields that were otherwise, you know, not being used. So um, it really is you, that wherever there are byproducts being produced, you can kind of think about upcycling.
0: Well, in the in the grand scheme of your your, your what you're doing uh, relative to um, I mean, you're, you did some work with the United Nations. World Food Program, um, how much are you going to be able to scale up Renewal Meal to have the type of impact that's noticeable?
2: Yeah, so right now we're working with um, about t- two facilities, um, and they produce you know millions of pounds of byproducts a year, um, and the the plant based milk. Ecosystem is fairly concentrated, so we think that we'll be able to to help upcycle a significant portion of of those byproducts, but um, Yeah. Like I I was saying early on, most food waste is still happening at the consumer level. So when we think about consumer or like food waste at scale, there are a lot of people trying to tackle this problem from all different angles. So upcycling is, is one angle and we're kind of all working at the manufacturing level, but there are other folks who are working at the like grocery store level and taking like unsold grocery produce. And there are people that are working at the sort of restaurant level and making sure that Meals that go unsold at restaurants at the end of every day are getting to people who need food um, or consumers. So there's like a really interesting app called Too Good To Go um, where you can go, you can log on at as a restaurant's about to close down for the day and get reduced price meals um, from the restaurant that are super high quality, but otherwise would would go to waste if they weren't able to sell it. So um, lots of this whole this kind of transformation of food-based production is, is taking lots of partners at lots of different levels.
0: Wow. I never heard of that app. And this is um where we're headed. I think generationally, your generation is so technologically savvy and understands ways you guys identify needs and create apps to solve them. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, just what you, what you guys do. Um, what, what, um, is your product, um, uh, does it taste good? Is it neutral? I mean, what, what kind of reviews or what's the feedback people get? And then more importantly, um, you know, the whole organic and healthy food eating thing, um, can be expensive, um, which is unfortunate because we go back to that same cycle. Um, is your how, how is your product priced? Um, are you competitive? Are you guys able to make profit? Um, what, what's going on with those two things? Your taste and your money.
2: <laughs> For sure, um, yeah. So, like, we started with the the pure ingredients, so the okar flour and the oat milk flour, um, as we call it. And when you start introducing just flowers to people. Their first question is, yeah, what does it taste like? So um, we knew that these ingredients were pretty novel, um, meaning that a lot of people had no idea how to conceptualize it. So we wanted to use like familiar vehicles to introduce these novel ingredients. So we started with America's favorite chocolate chip cookie, not under the guise that chocolate chip cookie is healthy but saying okay if your options are a grandma's brand cookie full of preservatives and um you know bleached flowers why don't we say try this chocolate chip cookie made with upcycled ingredients it's better for you better for the planet still a decadent treat but um let me show you that there is parity here as far as taste so that's kind of where we started and then we um Launched a line of just add oil and water vegan gluten free baking mixes made with these ingredients. So okay. Um, the pure flowers are definitely a little bit more challenging to use if, if you're a home cook um, and you enjoy the challenge of gluten-free baking. They might, they might be for you, but for most people, they're looking for something kind of quick and easy. So we created sort of the better for the planet Betty Crocker, um, where you just add oil and water. It's 100% vegan. Um, and then you just mix and bake and you can get um, all sorts of cookies and baking or brownies, um, and then we wanted to take that convenience factor one step further. So we've been expanding our line of ready-to-eat baked good products. Um, mm-hmm. And hopefully in the in the coming years and months and years that uh, moving into like snacking and um, other sort of ready-to-eat products. Um, as far as price, it's going to be right now, we sell them um, in the natural and specialty channel. So they are a bit more for retail. They're a little bit more concentrated um, Mm -hmm. in that market. So we just launched nationally at Whole Foods with the the flours and the baking mixes. Um, Ultimately, you know, we'd love to bring this down to the mass market level. So we are working with some private label grocery store brands to do um, sort of like their their private label, more affordable options, Um, still in sweet baking. But we, again, have ambitions to move beyond that as well. Um, But yeah, it's definitely a a real question is most of the people leading this industry for upcycled food are small startups Mm -hmm. that are venture capital backed, which makes it very hard. You have to show sort of returns for your investors. Um, And often there's a lot of processing costs that go into producing these ingredients and these products. And so you do kind of have to sell them at a premium, which is a bit antithetical to our overall mission of, you know, getting this nutrition back into the supply chain to feed people who right. need it. So um, I think we are, you know, we are honest with ourselves about like how do we get back to that that mission um, and and make sure that you know we're kind of tackling this access issue as yeah. we grow.
0: Yeah, well, you know, and um, at least you're honest and and transparent about it and you've got to get investors involved to get you started and investors want a particular return and therefore you have to have a particular margin and et cetera, et cetera. So it's doing what you have to do until you can get up to scale big enough where you can, you know, kind of control your own destiny a little bit more. So, yeah. um,
2: and I think we're um, working with a lot of partners. So Kroger actually, which is the largest grocery store in the country, they've invested about two and a half million dollars into upcycled food companies um, with the goal of trying to bring more upcycled products into their store, that, those stores that are in areas where um, you know people with less access might be.
0: I identified you as a champion for cultural exchange. What is cultural exchange and why are you so fervent about that?
2: Um, Yeah. I mean, I think it's really important to work together. Um, Partnerships is one of my favorite things that I get to do in my job now, but I think at a much larger scale, um, you know, we need to work together as a global community. So I was very lucky to um, spend time abroad working like doing a Fulbright fellowship in Taiwan, which was all about um, cultural exchange. So for those unfamiliar with the Fulbright program, basically they send um, Americans abroad to different countries to do work both in teaching and education and also research and vice versa. So those countries send um, folks to the US to learn and work at our institutions. I think it's just really important because you know it's so easy to say like, we're right and you're wrong and, you know, we're, we're doing it this way. And without kind of having that common ground and understanding of each other's cultural backgrounds, um, it's really hard to accomplish shared goals. And we all know, like, you know, climate change is one of those things that we have to have this shared goal of um, fighting this together. And that means that all of us All of the cultures globally need to kind of agree on shared goals and and shared paths forward. There, so um, I think for me that looks like understanding someone's you know food culture. It looks like understanding someone's um, language and understanding their ways of operating in the world. Like you know, U.S. culture is very like loud and proud and happy to be like in your face with conflict, and East Asian culture is very much like deferential and kind of um, you know not not so conflict forward in the in the public space and so how does that play out at a global scale when you're talking about things like you know oil and gas usage or um, like Paris Agreement kind of setting policies and, and getting people on board.
0: You um, have had a number of remarkable experiences, um, all literally all over the world. Um, what is it that you are most proud of that you that you've accomplished so far?
2: I'll just preface by saying I've, I've been very privileged to, and that I you know realize that not everybody can have access to all of these different opportunities, and I think I credit a lot of that to my opportunity to to go to Georgetown as an undergrad institution and all of the things that, that afforded me. So um, definitely take take those opportunities with with that lens in mind. I think yeah, I'm I'm very proud of the work that we do at Renewal Mill, just you know, um, and the movement that we've built for upcycled food. So, over the last three years, we started with a group of nine companies in the Upcycled Food Association um, that we founded as a trade association to sort of grow consumer awareness of upcycled food, and we've grown to over 225 members, including some of the largest uh, food companies in the world, so like Mondelēz, Barry Calvet. Kroger, Del Monte, um, people who really have sway over the global food system, um, and we've you know raised awareness of this and gotten them on board to. R- create some of their own upcycled products and help us educate consumers that when you purchase upcycled food, you're helping fight food waste, which is helping fight climate change. Um, so that work really means a lot to me. I think there's a lot, a lot more to to be done for sure. But um, yeah, hoping to to make some small strides in the in the fight against climate change.
0: There are food shortages beginning to happen, literally all over the world. With some of these things you talk about, soybean, wheat, etc. And what does that mean for you and your company in terms of trying to help combat that which is coming?
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, you see it in even the last few months, right? With like the war in Ukraine, Things like sunflower oil and wheat being seriously affected, and you go to the grocery store and it's like pre, it's like at the beginning of the pandemic where the the baking aisle is decimated in the wheat section, like you literally can't find wheat flour. Um, also, global price of soybeans, like you mentioned, is going up more than fifty five percent. And if you look at the commodity markets, it's it's crazy, and that has you know tumbling effects down the down the chain. So I think at our company we're we're trying to help fill those gaps, um, but also. Spark- this conversation of like, okay, since this is the situation that we're, the world is finding itself in, like, how do we, how do we get scrappier? How do we, like I said, use 100% of the food that we produce, right? Like, it's already getting harder to grow food. um, And, you know, we're in a huge drought, we're we're dealing with unprecedented um, climate disasters that are affecting our food supply. So when we have a crop like let, how do we double down on on our processing and make sure that we're not arbitrarily throwing out fifty percent of it when we could use that for something else? Um, and I think you're starting to see policy changes as well. So um, states like New York and California are putting organic waste bans into place, where it's literally illegal for you to take organic waste and to put it into a landfill. Um, and so those companies are having to get more creative about what they're doing with their, their byproducts. Um, and you're seeing it in countries like France, who was kind of a leader in this space. I think you'll start to see more of those policies coming into place, but it's kind of like, we always say upcycling is not a new concept. It was, you know, your grandma was probably upcycling. Anyone who lived through the great depression was like, how do I get as much value out of the food I purchase as, pos- as possible? So now,
0: What has been your, your greatest challenge, maybe your greatest disappointment? your greatest pushback?
2: Oh, lots, lots of, uh, I think that's part of the journey is uh, being resilient. I think in my own company here at Renewal Mill, one of the biggest challenges has definitely been um, the system as far as fundraising and being a a female team um, trying to fundraise. And it's definitely disheartening when you see companies creating a copycat product, another bar, if you will, another uh, sparkling kombucha that raised, you know, five, $10 million when we're like really struggling to to get enough to kind of keep our operations up and going. So I think that's, you know, on the one hand hard to face, but also exciting that there's a community of entrepreneurs um, that we can lean on, especially other female founders that we definitely rely heavily on um, for kind of learning from each other's best practices and and moving forward. Um, and I think on just the larger conversation of, of food waste, you know, we are constantly bombarded with all of the, all the problems, you know, all of the the massive scale of the issue that we're trying to solve. But I am heartened by the fact that like um we are, you know, making some strides. So we launched an upcycled certification program last year to to help certify products as upcycled to help educate consumers that when they see the upcycled certification seal, they know that that product is helping fight food waste. And in the first year of that program, the certified products are projected to prevent 800 million pounds of food waste. So um, definitely heartened by the fact that like when we all work together and we have a shared goal, like there is impact to be made, but um, you know, definitely humbled by how far we have to go.
0: Well, look, I think you guys are doing a fantastic job because you are having to change the mindset of people, and that's not an easy thing to do because their habits won't change until what they think about it changes, and so uh, kudos to you guys for uh, your resilience. Here on the podcast, we talk about three things. We talk about the importance of perspective, perseverance, and partnerships, And you've talked on some of these, but I want to give you an opportunity to tell me what you think of when you hear about each of these words. So we'll start with perspective. What does that mean to you?
2: I think perspective means kind of taking in data from everywhere um, and kind of understanding where you operate in that Larger context, whether or not it's a larger cultural context or it's a larger ecosystem context in the case of startups. Um, but I think it's, you know, really trying to, to take in that data, understand where you work and then you apply like a diversity, equity and inclusion lens to how you can affect change um, with the resources that you have. Perseverance. Yeah. Perseverance is (laughs) extremely important. I think, you know, especially in the last two years, there's a lot of things that can beat you down and being able to pick yourself up and just keep going, um, is, is really key. So in my work currently, I lead all of the sales. When I started this five years ago, people were like, um, nobody wants to eat trash. You know, like, that's gross. Why are you even talking to me about that? And now we've gone to being, um, listed as a top 10 trend for 2022 by Whole Foods and by some of the other largest um, sort of food companies in the world. So I think it's, it's, you know, sometimes I have to email people 15 times before i get a response and um just not being deterred by no's even if someone's like oh no i always say it's not a no it's a not now and then you got to go back to it um so yeah you got to just keep going if you care enough about it
0: well the the thing about being told nobody wants to eat trash i think that is hilarious but yeah
2: Uh, it's all in the framing too right like so much of what the framing is that it's food waste, but in reality, it's wasted food um, mm. and so trying to really hit that home for people that there is nothing oh. unsafe or gross about this concept. It's really just a framing and syntax issue.
0: Partnerships. How important has that been for you on your journey?
2: Incredibly important. I think partnerships and relationship building are the most important skills that you can learn in my work at Renewal Mill. Um We definitely love to partner with companies because we know that we're small and just getting off the ground, but we can leverage the audiences that much larger companies have built in order to help spread this message. So we've recently partnered with um, Miyoko's Creamery, which is one of the largest vegan butter and cheese companies in the country um, to use their leftover butter in their production facilities and combine that with our upcycled flour to create a cookie. Um, And then we've both gone to market with this message of saying, you know, we're we're doing better for the planet.
0: I just want to thank you for being here today, Carolyn. If people want to find out more about you, more about your company, um, where should they be looking?
2: Yeah, definitely head over to RenewalMill.com and on all social media platforms, you can find us at Renewal Mill and we're more than happy to chat.
0: All right. Well, hey, I want to thank you for a great uh, conversation today. And until next time on Paralysis to Purpose, the podcast, this is your host, David Cooks, reminding you that your ability to endure is always greater than your willingness to endure.
1: You can do anything you put your mind to.
3: Thanks for tuning in to Paralysis to Purpose. Don't forget to follow us on social media at Paralysis to Purpose on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. To purchase his book, visit DavidCookSpeaks.com. Be sure to tune in next time for more inspiring conversations with David Cooks. When
1: I was young, my uh, grandfather said, oh, he's gonna play the piano. And they said, you know, just because he hits a few notes, you know, right, that doesn't mean he said, no, he has the fingers and he's gonna play. And uh, ultimately I did. Well, my grandfather had had a stroke and was limited in what he could play. I would mimic what he did uh, because that's what I knew. Later on, I realized that I was mimicking his limitations i had limited myself because i you know revered him
3: next time on paralysis to purpose
1: i am so glad to have mario j radford with us today and it wasn't until i got a piano teacher that said the reason that he plays like that is because he had a stroke and his fingers are not able to stretch but your fingers are Uh, so don't don't uh, put a cap on your um, possibilities based on his limitations. Uh, paralysis to
3: purpose.